Good morning. Well, as the kids kind of head their direction, uh, if you're here with me for the rest of the time here, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. So first book in the New Testament, Matthew 1. And, you know, as we're turning there, just kind of thinking about what we're going to be talking about this morning, we're in Advent, as Tony was saying, these weeks leading up to our celebration of the birth of Jesus. And during the season, we wanted to take a look at some stories that, for the most part, for many of us, are fairly familiar. You know, last week we looked at the story of, you know, Mary pre-birth, before the birth of Jesus. And this week, we're going to look at the, that, almost that same story, but from the lens or from the perspective of Joseph. And Matthew's telling of that story in Matthew chapter 1. And as you're turning there, so Matthew 1 verse 18 is where we're going to begin in a moment. But just by way of preference, pre- preference, as I was kind of thinking about not only, you know, this Advent season and some of these familiar stories, I think it's just important to recognize that stories like this, you know, the story of Joseph and his interaction with the angel and kind of, you know, becoming aware that he is going to be the father of the Messiah and the same thing with Mary. These stories that are very familiar can become dangerously familiar in the sense that, especially if you have some sort of church background, it's like, oh yeah, I've, you know, heard that story before. You know, how many sermons have you heard on, you know, the Christmas story, whether it's the Magi bringing the gifts or Joseph and Mary and all these sort of very familiar stories. They become dangerously familiar. What do I mean by that? Well, it's this kind of reality where we kind of have this attitude or we can have this attitude of, oh, I've heard that before and not really allowing, number one, the text to really speak for itself, and missing what the text is actually trying to communicate, and then along with that, number two, kind of missing out on fresh ways that God might want to speak to us through the text. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to learn some new doctrine or or reinventing the wheel with theology or anything like that, but as the scriptures say in Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, and that God has a fresh word, even from this very familiar story, for each of us this morning. A word for us that in this season, in this moment, In whatever circumstance that you might be going through, would we be open for God's living and active word to speak into our lives today? And not just sort of do the thing like, oh, that familiarity can bring some sort of apathy at times. And so my prayer and hope is that as we dive through this section of scripture, whether you've been in church before or maybe you have no church background at all, that this story, God would speak to you afresh this morning. Now, with that said, let's dive in. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. The text says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, not only is this story familiar, let's also name another facet of this story. This story is actually fairly strange as well, right? Because it's not as if Joseph doesn't know where babies come from. It's not as if like, oh, we're, you know, in a, in a modern age now and we have Wikipedia and we're having an iPhone. And so we kind of have figured out where babies come from and Joseph didn't know before. And this, you know, Joseph just like, oh, well, I guess. I, I don't know. Because this, the text is saying that Mary, his soon-to-be official wife, was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Again, a very familiar part of the story, but just recognize the strangeness of this for a moment. Imagine for a moment you being Mary and Joseph. Try to close your eyes and imagine being, you know, 2,000 years ago. You're more than likely super young, 13, 14 years old. You live in kind of a small little 
rural village, Nazareth, maybe five, 600 people at most, very likely you've known each other for most of your life. And chances are this marriage, this arrangement has more or less been sort of designed from a very early age, that you have known this was going to be sort of who you were going to marry in this sort of culture. And you're there one day, you're Joseph, and you're hanging out with Mary, maybe you're, you know, your future in-laws, and Mary comes up to you and says, hey, Joseph, I have something to tell you. I'm pregnant. It's okay, though. The Holy Spirit's involved. Okay. Like, just imagine being Joseph in that, I mean, that conversation, I'm sure, had to have happened at some point, or that interaction. What do you do if you're Joseph in that moment? Right? Have you ever thought about that? Because think about it. The text says in verse 18, they're in this betrothal period. Let's talk about that for a moment. Right? This is, again, a, a different culture than ours. So this is, not, this is probably more serious than engagement, but not quite marriage as we might think of marriage. So this betrothal period, probably about a year-long period, where you're more or less like legally married, but you're not living together and the marriage has not been physically consummated. And so you're in this kind of in-between space for about a year, and it's in this period where it's very clear no physical kind of sexual intimacy is going to take place. Mary comes and says, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant, but it's okay. The Holy Spirit's involved. Now imagine, you're in that culture. You're Joseph. What are you supposed to do? Well, the text tells us what he thinks. Verse 19, right? Where Joseph is considering these things, the angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream saying, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now again, not only is this familiar, but this strangeness sort of just multiplies here. An angel appears in a dream. So if you already had this kind of weirdness happening, if you're Joseph and Mary comes up to you all of a sudden, and then you have verse 19 with the angel appearing to him in a dream. You're Joseph. You're going, whoa, what is happening right now? What am I supposed to do with this? Now, as we think about this, as we kind of look at this idea of Mary and her being this virgin that's going to give birth to the Messiah, let's talk about this for a moment. Think about this. The text says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus came about in this way. You know, the, the, the idea of the virgin birth it's crucial, it's fundamental, it's one of those things that's in our, our creeds. For millennia, Christians have believed and affirmed that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. You know, we were uh, talking about this passage with our young adults group a few days ago, and we kind of had a, a moment where we were going through Matthew 1 together, and one of the things I just really appreciated was that, you know, studying and looking at Scripture in community, you just have so many different insights and so many different ways and angles of looking at the text. And it was just a really helpful exercise for us as a group to work through this. And it was helpful for me as I was kind of thinking about and preparing for this message that this is not just something that, you know, I'm coming up with or I'm doing by myself, but collectively as a group, working through the text and allowing the friendships and the relationships to help inform and contribute to really what's about to take place as we're kind of diving through this this morning. But I say that because as we're kind of working through the text... Just so many key observations, wonderful observations came out from our discussion on Wednesday night. And so some of those will be shared throughout kind of as we go through this here this morning. But one of those was just pointing out the fact that if you're Joseph and you're kind of having to process and kind of work through this and to think about all that would have to take place as you have to make this decision do I divorce? Do I separate from Mary? 
and the consequences of that, not only for himself, but also for Mary. And to think about the ramifications that this would eventually have to play out. Because if this is going to go bad, really, in both scenarios, if Joseph continues to decide to divorce her kind of quietly, then eventually people are going to find out, hey, the marriage didn't happen. And people are going to start to ask questions and rumors are start going to be able to kind of buzz around the little village. And the chatter on next door is just going to kind of multiply, right? And so if that's a, not a very good scenario there, there's shame involved there. But then if Joseph, as we'll find out, kind of continues to go through with the marriage and comes to accept and believe that this baby has been conceived because of the Holy Spirit, then who's really going to believe that? I mean, think about it, even in our day. That's a very hard thing for us to believe in a post-enlightenment, scientific, materialistic world, to believe that Mary the Virgin gave birth to the Messiah, Jesus. Again, I'm trying to just help us kind of situate ourselves as Joseph in this moment. What would it be like, the, the processing and the thinking and the contemplating that Joseph would have to go through? And like I was saying, yes, the virgin birth is something crucial and it's important. It's in our creeds and it's kind of the theology behind it of Jesus being born of a virgin, kind of, kind of bypassing perhaps the sinful nature so that he would be born not with kind of the, the flesh that we might have as far as the sin nature goes, but to redeem humanity. That's a core sort of theological piece in this whole equation when we talk about the virgin birth. But as we think about this, though, perhaps that's not the only thing Matthew is thinking as he is narrating this story. What do I mean? Well, like I was just mentioning, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. One thing that's super interesting is that word birth is the word genesis in, in the original language. It's the word for Genesis, beginning. Now the beginning, the genesis of Jesus took place in this way, Matthew is saying. And if you're kind of a, a, a one that's in tune with the Hebrew scriptures, and you hear that the beginning or the genesis of Jesus took place in this way, and then twice within the next three verses, the Holy Spirit's involved, where is your brain going to? Genesis 1, right? Can you think of another beginning story where the Holy Spirit is involved? Genesis 1, verse 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, but the Spirit of God was what? Hovering was present, was there. And so, yes, Matthew is saying, yes, that this is, yes, the power, the miracle, the might of God at work in the life of Mary to bring the life of Christ into the womb of Mary, for sure. But this is also an echo back to Genesis 1, that what's about to take place here in Matthew chapter 1 is nothing short of the renewal of all creation. An echo back to the time when the Spirit of God was at work, bringing light into the darkness, that here in Matthew chapter 1, this is a recreation moment. That nothing short of the renewal of all creation is about to take place in the birth of this baby boy. And now we begin to see that something much more than just a cute little story is about to take place. That the story of complete recreation and redemption is about to happen. But as Joseph is kind of interacting with this, Again, the text says that Joseph was, quote, verse 19, a just man and unwilling to divorce or unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What's going on here? Well, again, just a little bit of the background here that in this sort of context, in this sort of culture, you have Joseph 
who's described as a just man. That's kind of very technical, kind of really precise language for someone who's observant of the Torah, observant of God's teaching. Someone who is maintaining a life that is faithful to the ways of God, practicing and following after Yahweh, the true God of Israel. And as such, going back to the Torah, Deuteronomy 22, there's provision there when that there's kind of marital infidelity or adultery outside of marriage, that the provision, Deuteronomy 22, was that the offending party, Mary in this case, is to be stoned in Deuteronomy 22. You think about John chapter 8, right? The woman caught in the act of adultery, what do the religious leaders want to do? They want to stone her. But Joseph, the text says here in the passage, does not want to, quote, put her to public disgrace or to, quote, public shame. Because you can imagine the shame that Mary would have to go through to be drawn out into kind of the court of public opinion, not just in, you know, in people's brains, but like literally drawn out to have this whole thing exposed for everyone. And Joseph kind of takes a step back and says, I don't want to put Mary through that. And so instead, there's provision within sort of the oral tradition around this time for Joseph to, to quote, divorce her quietly with just having two witnesses involved. And so Joseph decides to take that route and begins, again, to speak to the character of God. But it's, again, as he is considering, verse 20, these things, it's, this is then when the angel of the Lord appears to him. Think about what's happening here. It's in the process of Joseph sort of mentally kind of considering or, or kind of thinking through what's happening right now. It's in this process of Joseph having to think and to contemplate because he's not totally sure what to do. Can you imagine being Joseph at this moment? What would you do? I mean, we know how the story ends. But think of all the questions that perhaps Joseph is asking himself at this point. Think of all the different things that he has to figure out. Like, how is this going to, what's the impact this is going to have on my marriage or potential future marriage? What's this going to have the impact on my reputation in the, in the society? And it's as he's considering the, these things, then that's when the angel Lord appears to him and begins to speak. And as the text is pointing out, this is Joseph being described as a just man, meaning that for the most part, his motives must be pure. They must be right. And he's attempting to make a good, wise, healthy decision, considering Mary ahead of his own reputation, considering Mary's well-being in this whole process, and not just going, oh, I'm just going to throw her to the wayside. It's as he's attempting to make a really good decision from a place of good motives that God intervenes and even course corrects. Which gives us this category for God's people as we are processing and making decisions and considering things that are from a good place with good intentions and good motives and might even align with what God might be clearly saying. That perhaps God might still want to intervene and speak and maybe shift and adjust and add another lens to the, the puzzle, if you will, that we might not be seeing at that moment. Because with the angel, look what the angel says then to Joseph. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Because that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Again, I mentioned at the beginning, this story is so familiar. And so we read verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's talk about this for a second. The name Jesus. What are we even talking about there? Well, it's the kind of doing some of the language work here. Jesus means is the name Yeshua, 
which simply means Yahweh saves. This name Jesus, this is the one, the, the name of Jesus himself means Yahweh saves. So when you read back into verse 21, you shall call his name Yahweh saves before he will save his people from their sins. So who's doing the saving? Yahweh or Jesus? Yes, right? <laughs> it's both. And this is the claim embedded within this verse. That in this baby, Yahweh is saving his people. In this fragile, vulnerable, weak little baby, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator from Genesis 1, the creator of all, the sustainer of all, is saving his people from their sins. Now, at least for me, when I read verse 20 immediately, right off the bat, he's going to save his people. I automatically want to put myself right in there. God's going to save me. And that's true, Right? If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is saving you and has saved you and will save you from your sins. But in context, who are, quote, his people? The Jews, Israel. Which then, we have to then do the work of actually, what does it actually then mean? Because you have these two S words, sin and save. Talk about churchy words, right? What are we even talking about when we're talking about save or salvation and sin? And I think some of the the way into really getting at what the scriptures are talking about with the language of these two S words, save and sin, is recognizing his people. That means something for Matthew, a Jewish writer. All the way back to the story of Israel in the Old Testament, that God has called and formed a people to be his light to the nations, a blessing to the nations. And that God has called the family of Abraham, Israel, to be the conduit of blessing and redemption in a broken world. But Israel does not live up to the task. Israel, quote, misses the mark, if you will, sins, does not represent Yahweh well in the world because of their own choices and things that happen to them. And so what's needed is a rescuer, one that will bring salvation to restore God's people to then be that conduit of blessing to continue that storyline to the rest of the world. See, for a lot of us, when we think of like sin and salvation, it's easy to kind of just throw that into sort of our Western individualism ways of thinking. Where we think of sin as like simply or reduced to just like not following or following moral or ethical commands. Obeying or disobeying God's rules. And then salvation is kind of reduced to like going to the good place when you die. Not the TV show, but like heaven. Right? And so we kind of have this Western way of thinking about sin and salvation. But I guarantee you, Joseph, when he is being told in 21 that this little baby that you will name Jesus will save his people from their sins, he's not thinking about, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm going to go to the good place now when I die. What is Joseph thinking? He's like, yes, this is the promised rescuer. This is the one that Isaiah and the prophets spoke about that would bring God's kingdom, that would restore and renew and bring healing to all of creation. That God's kingdom would come to earth and as, as we, has been anticipated and has been promised. See, that sin is not less than sort of the following or not following the rules, so to speak. But within the context, sin is like this parasite, this invader into God's good creation. Sin is not natural in the sense of Genesis 1 and 2. Sin is not how God intended or designed this world and our lives to be. 
Sin is like a cancerous insect or parasite invading our individual lives, the whole world, our relationships. It's what the theologian Cornelius Planticus says. Sin is, quote, the culpable disturbance of shalom. Shalom being this Hebrew word for flourishing and fullness. Flourishing and fullness with my relationship with God, first and foremost. Relationships horizontally with each other. Relationship to my own self and to the rest of creation, the rest of the world. That sin is like this cancerous disease that invades and distorts and disrupts all of those different facets. And verse 21 is saying that this vulnerable little baby is the one that will bring salvation and rescue from all of sin. Not just on an individual level, but on a corporate, cosmic, renewal of all creation kind of level. And that salvation is not just about going someplace else when I die, but it's about God bringing his healing love and power to us in the here and now, extending that through eternity. Because when we think about salvation, salvation and this idea of healing go hand in hand. If sin is this cancerous parasite that's invaded my own body and my own life, that yes, I say yes to and that yes, I am responsible to, the healing work of God is salvation. That God's salvation does bring healing. Healing to my relationships, healing to my relationship with God that's been ruptured, healing in this world that we see the effects of sin in so many different places. You know, when we think about this, Jesus has come to save. He's the one who has come to bring healing and salvation and wholeness. And then all the ways that we choose to not align with the ways of God are our ways of instead aligning with all of the, the, the evil and the effects of sin that disturb all of the shalom that God desires to bring. You know, every year around this time, around Advent, I read the short little book by Athanasius. He's one of the church fathers in the fourth century. And one of the kind of main stalwarts kind of defending kind of orthodox Christianity, one that articulated and helped to kind of collaborate with the Nicene Creed and all the, 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 theology, the, the theology behind the incarnation and the deity of Christ. He has this short little book called On the Incarnation that I love to read every time during Advent. And because it's this great little kind of pamphlet or treatise on the importance and just the, 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 the beauty of God becoming human. And in this small little section, he talks about the healing work of the incarnation. And he says this. Once man was in existence, and things that were, those things that existed needed to be healed, it followed as a matter of course that the healer and savior should align himself with us in order to heal. It's not hard to look out in the world and recognize that there's a ton of brokenness. Brokenness in my own life, individually brokenness in relationships and in the world at large. But what we see here is that this is not just kind of like a, a new fad or this is like how Christians for centuries have thought about the saving work of God. Bringing healing to us individually and collectively as, a, as the world, as creation. And this is why Paul says in Romans 8, creation longs with groaning and anticipation for this redemption or healing to take place. This is why the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says, by his wounds... We are healed. 
that it's through this baby that would one day grow up to be nailed to a cross and through that sacrificial act of love would unleash healing or the potential for healing for each and every one of us and for all of creation at large. Again, why bring all this up? Why bring all of this sort of theology on sin and salvation? Because I don't want these words, these two S words, to just be like, oh, kind of hijacked by popular culture and Netflix shows and have our ways of thinking about these things through the lens of kind of Western individualism. But how do we rethink biblically these very popular words, sin and salvation, through the lens of Scripture? And that we would be, in the best sense, disrupted by what the Scriptures are actually saying about this. That sin is actually probably far more damaging than we often realize, and God's salvation is far more comprehensive than we might realize. And that God's intent and desire is to bring healing to this world. Not for us to escape. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. Now all that to say, think with me a little bit more on this. When Joseph, 24, woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Again, we see Joseph. It's just this short little almost cameo appearance that Joseph has in the biblical story. You know, Mary gets like a chapter and a half. Joseph gets like a little paragraph. But notice, notice like the receptivity. Notice the openness. Notice the obedience. Think of the character of a man. Did we just, the scriptures described it, verse 19, was a just man or a righteous man. A man who is open to God speaking and intervening in his life. Open to God disrupting his life. Like we think about the Christmas stories like this cute, like fuzzy child story. But this would be a disruption for someone like Joseph. This is not how Joseph intended or thought his life was going to take place. But you see in verse 24 and 25 in the passage kind of overall that Joseph responds and is obedient. And this isn't going to be the last time Joseph is going to need to do this. If we had more time, we'd jump into chapter 2, and it's in a moment of crisis and suffering and danger that Joseph again has to respond and does respond to bring Jesus and Mary to safety, to travel and to find refuge in the land of Egypt. And I just point this out to recognize that here we have a man, humble, obedient, open to the voice of God, And it is through these young, probably really young, kind of soon-to-be-married couple that God is bringing salvation and rescue for all sin that's taken place. Think about the amazingness of this story. Think about, again, how, again, yes, it's familiar, but this is how our God works. Through the least likely through the humble, the open, the willing, the one that's willing to turn and to listen and to be receptive to the things of God. Now, all that to say, let's kind of land the plan a little bit here. Let's talk about how this story might land for us in our everyday life here in this Advent Christmas season in 2021. Now, as we kind of went through this passage, there's two things that really kind of stood out as we were working through this. And they, the two things, I think, are the two names that Jesus has given or that this boy's given. The first one is, yes, Jesus. 
which means, again, Yahweh saves. Now think about this for a second. Yahweh saves. That's what the name Jesus actually means, that God is in the business of saving and bringing rescue. But if you really begin to think about this, and we talked about this even on Wednesday with our young adults group, that there's actually a little bit of kind of an offensiveness to this message. Because what this implies is that you and I need rescue. That you and I have issues and problems and brokenness and, yes, sin in our lives. And that part of understanding and recognizing the message that, yes, Jesus brings salvation or Jesus is salvation or Yahweh saves is that a recognition and a humility of all the different ways that I go against God's desire for shalom and wholeness in the world. Tim Keller on a recent podcast said something to the effect of this, that what the Western world wants to be saved from is people telling them they need to be saved. Right? Because no one likes being told that I have brokenness, that I have sin, that, I, that I, I'm not living up to the way that God has intended me. And this isn't about like some angry God in the sky who's bringing down a bunch of rules. No, this is about a God who's bringing healing and shalom and grace to this world. Joshua Ryan Butler in his little book called Skeletons in God's Closet reframes it like this. The question is not so much are you saved as in like are you in or you're out. But the question is will you let God heal you? Will you come to the place of recognizing your need for healing? Your need of healing from all of the effects of sin that have been done by you, that have been done to you? The question becomes, will you let God heal you? Which requires humility, vulnerability, repentance, a turning back to him. But friends, this is the good news of Christmas, that God, who is creator of all, Genesis 1, Genesis 1 and 2, right? The God of the universe does not stand distant or, or aloof and far off, but draws near. That even in our sin, God comes near to us, which leads us to the second name. That you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the text would go on to say that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Referring to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 7 verse 14. That you will call his, that he will be called Jesus, who saves people from our sins, and that his name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. That yes, even in our brokenness and even in our sin, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Again, think about this for a moment. This is not something that you just hear and kind of move past and like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go on to the next thing with my day. I'm going to go, you know, do Christmas shopping. No, God with you, with us, the creator of the universe draws near to you in your brokenness, in your shame, in your guilt, and all the things you've done or haven't done. We have a God who doesn't stand far off but draws near, Emmanuel, God with us. And it's very easy for us, it's very easy for myself to, yes, agree with this theological truth. To, yes, internalize this and go, yes, I believe that in, the, the Christian faith teaches that God does not stand far off. He draws near. He's near the brokenhearted. We can quote the psalm. We can sing the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, but then not really live and experience the reality that God is with you. That we know it in the sense I can quote this verse or I can sing the hymn about it, but in our everyday, day-to-day -day life, does the fact that 
God with us? Does that radically impact how we think and how we live, how we decide things and our relationships and so on and so forth? I was thinking about this this week. There's often some barriers between us, yes, believing this truth, but also experiencing this truth of God with us. And the first barrier to really living into this reality that God is with us, number one, I think it's busyness. Especially in this season, right? Where it's so easy to be caught up with all the different things that are happening on the calendar. And it's like, especially this year, right? It's like we're making up for lost time. We couldn't do nothing last holiday season. So now the calendar is like three times as full, right? And there's a lot of good things there on the calendar. A lot of fun things for sure that I'm really grateful for to do. But it's so easy to have this like, oh, on to the next thing and see like 33 different Christmas tree lightings and 33 different birthday parties. And it's like, whoa, what are we doing, right? And so it can get in the way of really slowing down and remembering and living into this reality that God is with us. That the busyness of this season in particular can be a barrier at times to really slowing down and remembering and recognizing that God is with us. The second one, though, is, is lies. Lies that we believe about ourselves, lies we believe out in the culture, Lies that prevent us from really, truly experiencing the reality that God is with us. And so we live in this culture where it's easy to kind of believe the lie that I am my own self. I can kind of chart my own course. I can make my own thing happen. And that that's going to lead to freedom and to flourishing and to life. And when we live into that lie, we hinder and have a barrier from really, truly knowing and experiencing that God is truly with us. Because we're just doing it on our own. You know, we've been going through this a really kind of fun little book with our young adults group, Live No Lies. And we had like our last little meeting together on Monday night. And we had, we usually get like Domino's pizza when we kind of hang out and talk about this book. Because the book is kind of articulating all the lies in our culture that are really easy to believe, that really prohibit us from really living presence to who God is. And so we usually get Domino's pizza. And I'm thinking about like ordering the Domino's pizza. And they have like this thing on the website where it's like build your own pizza. And I just have, like, I don't like making decisions. So you have, like, do you want tomato sauce or amazing tomato sauce? And there's, like, 33 different tomato sauces to choose from and all these different toppings. And it's, like, this build-your-own sort of adventure. Or it's, like, sometimes just the stress behind, and she's like, this is so dumb. The stress behind, like, building your own pizza is kind of like us trying to curate our own lives sometimes. Where it's, like, how is this person going to think about me? How is this decision going to impact this? And we're just trying to living our own lives, believing that this is what's going to lead to flourishing and happiness. When you just, you know, are better off choosing the, the pizza that's been given to you, right? <laughs> like, just, just stick with what God has told you in the scriptures. It's, he's laid it out for you, right? That's a really dumb illustration. It's the best I got, though. It's the, the best I got. But, like, do you get it? Like, the, the lies that we so easily believe that really prohibit us from really, truly experiencing the reality that God is with us. And so as we kind of think about this, I was thinking, okay, so how then can we as, as people practically, as God's people, practically be more present to the God who's already present with us? Because God's present. He's there. He's here. He's with you. 
We sing that song sometimes, you know, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And I love towards the end of that song, there's the refrain, Holy Spirit, make us more aware of your presence. The implication being that sometimes I'm just so distracted with the busyness or in kind of just with all the lies about what the world is saying or about what the world says about myself, what I believe about myself that's not true. Where we begin to doubt, just like what the serpent in the garden said, did God really say? Or what the, the tempter said to Jesus, if you really are the son of God, we believe these lies about God's character and our identity that create these barriers. But what are some of like the positive, like sort of practical ways to move towards really living into deeper sort of awareness and presence with God? I was thinking about this and I kind of came up with some different words that start with S to kind of help me remember some of this. So I'm going to share them with you for just real briefly here, and then we'll close. How can we become just more aware of and living into the God who's already present with us? The first S is being still. You think about Joseph as a just, righteous man. That's kind of language for someone who's really living into the reality and the vision of what the Hebrew Scriptures have laid forth. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, all throughout the Psalms, there's this idea of be still and know that I am God. Instead of hustling with all the busyness in our culture, coming to this place of being quiet, being still. Maybe this is Sabbath, maybe this is rest, but just still. It's just a one-word way to kind of lean into this. And especially in our culture of fast-paced, digital addiction, so on and so forth, what does it look like to slow down and be still before God? Second one, Scripture. You know, I've talked about this before, but scripture before phone is kind of, not, it's actually not original to my own language, but it's been helpful for me to think about this. That instead of just kind of giving into the first thing of a, a notification on my phone, how might we be a people that are attuned to the voice of God through the scriptures? Scripture before phone. And this isn't like a legalistic sort of thing, like you have to like read your Bible before you look at your phone. That's not what this is about at all. But it's about kind of indexing our hearts, indexing our kind of our habits to become the kinds of people that are more present to the God who's already present with us. That we have a God who speaks and draws near, and that God has given us his very word in the scriptures. You know, one of the things that I've practically tried to do is I, I have, I've been trying to not put my phone in my back pocket, because I have this like, natural body habit of just pulling it out, right? It's just like this natural sort of thing. And so what I've tried to do is replace not having my phone in my back pocket with an index card of a passage of scripture that I'm trying to memorize. And so like, I, I have like this jetpack thing for this mic right now, but so it's in my front pocket now, but I just have an index card. So like when I'm naturally in this habit of like wanting to check my phone, it's like I have a passage of scripture, which is actually the, the story we're reading this morning, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And so it's just really cool because it's like these moments where, you know, whether I'm waiting to pick up, you know, Santa from school or like making my coffee for the water to boil, instead of doing this and, and a screen looking at me, it's an index card with tiny font, but like it, it helps you like memorize or have scripture before you. And I think, I don't know, it works for me. Maybe it might work for you as just a way to kind of reorient and re-index our habits that we might just become tangibly more aware that God is with us. Still, scripture, this third one, Shema, which is just the Hebrew word for listen or obey. So kind of as we're in this posture of being still and hearing God's word, what does it look like to listen to obey what God is, is saying and speaking to us. And incorporated within this is prayer, of course, talking with God and also hearing God speak to us. And this, again, 
in the midst of the crazy busyness of this season. I'm not saying this is easy to do, but hopefully these are just a little kind of tangible ways that we might begin live into the reality of Emmanuel, God with us. And the last one is simply just song. And what all that I mean by that is simply worship. That this kind of almost culminates, if you will, into a life of worship and adoration to who God is. And as we think about even this phrase, Emmanuel, like we have a song that has this word in it, right? The ability to sing this song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel, who loans in mournly exile here, that we become the kinds of people because our attention has been given to God, our attention has been focused on who God is, that we respond in worship and in adoration, that through this little baby boy, that this baby Jesus, Emmanuel God with us, has brought healing and salvation to my sin, to your sin, and the sin that plagues this whole entire world. Now all of that to say, this isn't like, okay, now you have to do these four things or else God's not with you. That's not what I'm saying at all. No, you cannot do any of these four things, and God, Emmanuel, is with you right now, regardless if you do or don't do any of these things. So hopefully that relieves some of this, you know, the lie of the pressure that you have to do this for God to be with you. That's not what I'm saying at all. There's almost this reality that I think sometimes Paul might say in the, in the lens of, like, looking at spiritual practices, that, that if you read Scripture and pray and Sabbath, but do not have love, you're just like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. This isn't necessarily about doing these things to earn God's love, but recognizing that Emmanuel, God with us, is with you, and he is the one who is drawn near. He is the one that has come near to you. And at the same time, that promise or that passage in James chapter 4, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know, I want the worship team to come up, and as we think about and transition into worship through song. I just invite you as we lean into this a little bit. That maybe for you that you've heard this story 133 different times. You know Jesus, Yahweh saves, Emmanuel, but it, there's like some barriers up. There's some lies that are getting in the way from you truly believing and experiencing the healing and the salvation that God wants to bring. And that this salvation is not just like a one-time thing, it's a process. The scriptures talk about, yes, we have been saved, but also that we are being saved. We are being healed. And that for each of us in this room, that God wants to continue that process of healing. And that promise of Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. But to recognize that this is not just about you individually, but just even that phrase, God with us. This is in community, together. And it kind of just hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Because I immediately always read Emmanuel, God with us, but implicitly I'm thinking God with me, individually. But the text says God with us, collectively. And the importance of the community and the friendships we have in this place, the journey together, recognizing that God is with us collectively, for sure, yes, individually, I'm not denying that, but collectively with us in our brokenness, in our pain, that God is here. And so Jesus, this morning we ask that God, you would just continue 
the work that you have begun in us. God, I pray that for any of us that might be just even a little bit holding on to lies, where we think that we can't truly be known by you, that we really don't believe that you love us and that you are for us. God, I pray you'd break those barriers, those walls down. God, I pray that you would, in the midst of so many good things, but often overly full busyness of this season, that God, you would help us to slow down, to be still, to know that you are God, the God who draws near to us in our pain and our brokenness. So Jesus, we love you, we thank you, only because you have first drawn near 